Take your Bibles, turn with me to the book of 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings chapter 18. Um, last week we began a series of messages we're calling Renewal. Um, and the idea behind it is that we need the Lord to move among us. I need the Lord to move in my life. We need the Lord to move in our church. We're asking the Lord this year, our verse for the year is... Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. And so we're asking the Lord to build us, our lives, to build our church and to build his kingdom. And if you were here last week, I believe you know, I believe that um, you would have recognized that the Lord moved in the midst of our services. In ways that was not, the Lord moves every week, at least that's our prayer, but it was a little more last week. And because of that, I was praying to the Lord this week, and the Lord wrecked my preaching schedule a little bit. So I don't know if you know this, but generally each year I put together a preaching schedule of pray through, spend some time away, kind of a mini retreat in my office or uh, somewhere else where I work through, pray through, ask the Lord to guide and to lead. And last week I was so excited, I had one filled out for the entire year. What the Lord had for us, where the Lord was taking us. And I sat down on Tuesday and the Lord basically said, scrap it. I'll give you each week what we're going to do for the next little bit. And so I did. And so Jeremiah has all these plans that he was so impressed with last week that I'm doing. And the Lord said, that's not the way we're operating. And part of that is because someone asked me last week, I, I was as I was leaving, Somebody said, you're, you're really talking about revival, so why do you think the word was renewal instead of revival? And I hadn't really thought about that because I didn't, you know, when the Lord gave me the word, when we were, I was praying and just out of the blue, the Lord sent, hey, this year is going to be about renewal at the church. I didn't say, well, Lord, why did you choose that word instead of revival? What was it? But the Lord gave me a word even in that moment last week when I was standing down here after that amazing service. I was talking with one of our members and I said, because I think for some of us that grew up and that's most of us in this room, not all of us, but most of us in this room have grown up at some point, right? Oh, okay. But I mean, when most of us grew up many years ago, the word revival didn't necessarily come to mean something that changed our lives. It could. But for many of us, revival was a series of meetings where a guest preacher would come in. It's time for revival. We've scheduled, when I think back on how God probably laughs at some of the things we do, we have scheduled revival for a month from now. Revival is not something you can schedule biblically. You can hope for, pray for, plan for, but you can't schedule it. And just in that moment last week, I said, because what I think the Lord is wanting to do in our lives is not a one-time, let's get back right. It's a continual renewing of us in the year ahead. And so this week, as I was praying through what God was to have for us this morning, knowing it was going to be a little different morning because we've got so many people out and we're in the midst of, uh, had seen the forecast already and just praying, Lord, give me a word. And he said... That today we're going to talk about how do we sustain it once it gets here. 
How do we sustain renewal once it arrives? And I thought about a guy that I've talked about before. I've shown his picture before. This is him. Does anybody know who that is? That's Charles Spurgeon. Okay. Charles Spurgeon, during his time, was the most famous preacher in the world. And that's not an exaggeration. He's one of the most influential preachers in history. He ministered during the 1800s in London at a church called Metropolitan Tabernacle. Charles Spurgeon had thousands in his church and would have on a Sunday morning sometime up to eight, nine, ten thousand people show up for church in a church without a microphone or electricity. In addition, he had over 25,000 people on a paid subscription to receive by the mail the written sermons he had given on Sunday morning. That's why we have so many of them. That's why there's a center at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary that just have collected the lost sermons of Spurgeon. We have found some and they have them. He was an influential pastor. and He is one of, there are several pastors that I kind of quoted Use this quote. He's one of them. And it's interesting, this idea. Somebody asked him one time why people, so many people came to Metropolitan Tabernacle Church. And he said, my goal is to set myself on fire and people come to watch me burn. They asked him what was the reason. He was a gifted communicator, a gifted writer of sermons. Now, it's a different day and a different age. If many of you picked up one of his sermons today, and in fact, even when I sometimes in research pick up a sermon, it's not the easiest to read, just like anything else written in the 1800s. But someone would ask him one time, so how do you sustain this? How does this keep going? And he would continually talk about the boiler room. Now, we're thankful for the boiler room at this church. Amen. Especially on days like today and uh, if weather's like it's the next week, like during this time of year, we're thankful for it. We pray. <laughs> I don't say this lightly at all. We continually pray. I know the, the property and grounds committee continually prays that that boiler stays working because it's been the same one that's been in this building since it was built. But he wasn't talking about the physical boiler, although what he was talking about did happen in the boiler room. You see, at Metropolitan Tabernacle, immediately behind the pulpit, behind the wall of the pulpit, was the boiler room. And every week while he preached, people would gather in the boiler room, a small group of people, and pray consistently for him while he preached. And they said, what's the key to your success? He would say, the boiler room. He's quoted as saying, God has a soft spot for the unglamorous secret work of prayer. I want to look today at 1 Kings 18. And when you first immediately go to 1 Kings 18, some of you are going to notice that there's a very famous story in 1 Kings 18, and we are going to mention that story, but we're going to talk about the story after the story that is the point of the story, and the one that is often neglected when you preach or when you hear or when you read 1 Kings 18, because the story is so dramatic. 1 Kings 18 tells the story of Elijah, the prophet, considered one of the greatest prophets of the Israelite people, when I, Elijah the prophet 
has a confrontation with the prophets of Baal. You know the story, right? Most of you do. There's a wicked king in Israel. We'll talk about more him more in a minute. Israel has run away from the Lord. They have set up the king and his wife, Ahab and Jezebel, have set up shrines to other gods within the area. They have allowed prophets from other faiths into their country. And in the midst of that, Elijah decides to confront them at Mount Carmel. And on top of Mount Carmel, he says, let's basically have a war of the gods. You pray to your God, I'll pray to my God. Whichever God answers is the one true real God, and we will give allegiance to him. And so the prophets of Baal, you know this, right? They set up and they put, they get everything just right on the altar. They put the sacrifice on top of the altar. And then it says they go to praying. And it is fervent, consistent prayer. It is all kinds of things happening in the midst of that. They are chanting and screaming. They're cutting themselves, it says, slashing themselves, part of their ritual, a part of what was going on. They're just doing all of that. And in the midst of it, nothing is happening. And Elijah starts to talk trash. Right? What's, what's wrong? Did, did, did your God leave? Did he, is he on vacation? He literally says, is he on a journey somewhere else? Is he, is he hard of hearing? Maybe you need to, to get a little louder. He's, he can't quite hear you, I don't think. Or maybe he is indisposed. Y'all, y'all know that's the polite way to say it, right? In fact, most of your Bibles will not, in English, translate what's actually there because he literally says to them, is he in the toilet? Did your God have to relieve himself? And then he says, or maybe he's asleep and just needs to be awakened. Now, here's the, the, the reality about all that. If, if a God is not able to be all places at all times, if a God cannot hear his people, if a God has to relieve himself, and if a God has to nap, then you have no God. Right? And so he says all these things, they go through all that they do, and then it comes time for him, and he gets them to douse the altar, he puts water all on it, it's crazy how they've got, they've got the trench, the trench is full with the water, and then this is what happens in chapter 18, verse 36. At the time for offering the evening sacrifice, the prophet Elijah approached the altar and said, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you are God in Israel and I am your servant and that at your word I have done all these things. Let these people know who the true God is. Answer me, Lord, answer me so that these people will know that you, the Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the Lord's fire fell and consumed the burnt offerings, the wood, the stones, and the dust, and it licked up the water that was in the trench. When all the people saw it, they fell face down and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. This confrontation ends up with this celebration that is happening. And what's interesting about that What's interesting about what's going on in this particular passage is at the end, when it says the Lord, he is God, he is our God, right? When that's what it says, 
what's actually there, the original word, would have been basically a retelling of Elijah's name. Elijah's name is, the Lord is my God, or the Lord Yahweh is God. And so they would have been chanting, almost in that moment, in a double way, Elijah, Elijah. It would have been a declaration of glory for what God had done through his prophet and a declaration that the Lord God is the only God. And so that's the story. We, we know that story. We've walked through that story. I've preached on that story. I love that story. It's a great children's church flannel board story. Except for the part that, that they slaughter all the prophets of Baal afterwards in a valley. But we don't tell that in children's church, right? But the of that story was something else. Because it happens in the midst of extreme famine and drought in the land. In fact, we talked about this last week. Throughout Scripture, you see this recurrent theme of that when God's people are disobedient, there is drought. And some of that comes from the reality that in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 11, basically God says that when my people choose other idols, go different directions, when they walk away from me, during this time period, in the midst of the Old Testament understanding, that when that happens, God says, I will dry up the skies and drought will come. And in chapter 17, we actually see God's declaration through Elijah that that judgment had come upon them. So in chapter 17 says, Now Elijah the Tishbite from Gilead settlers said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives in whose presence I stand, there will be no dew or rain during these years except by my command. He is saying that unless the prophet of the Lord says it can rain, it will not rain. And what we have in chapter 18, and this is about, according to scholars, three years later. And it has not rained. At the beginning of chapter 18, it says, After a long time, this is in verse 1, The word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year. Go and present yourself to Ahab. I will send rain on the surface of the land. And so, Elijah is following through with God's command to him that he has said it will not rain unless the prophet says it won't rain. God says it's time to go to Ahab and tell him it will rain, but I want this confrontation to show that the rain is coming from the one true God. And so you have the confrontation. The celebration happens. The people get on their face and then begin to exalt and the Lord Yahweh is the one true God. There's just one thing that hasn't happened yet. Rain. And so, the prayer that we see that comes shows us what it's like to pray big prayers before the Lord. Verse 41. We're going to focus on the last few verses. Verse 41. Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for there is the sound of a rainstorm. So Ahab went to eat and drink, but Elijah went up to the summit of Carmel. He bent down on the ground and put his face between his knees. Then he said to his servant, go up and look toward the sea. So he went up and looked and said, there's nothing. 
Seven times Elijah said, go back. And on the seventh time, the servant reported, there's a cloud as small as a man's hand coming up from the sea. And Elijah said, go and tell Ahab, get your chariot ready and go down so the rain doesn't stop you. In a little while, the sky grew dark with clouds and wind and there was a downpour. So Ahab got in his chariot and he went to Jezreel. The power of the Lord was on Elijah and he tucked his mantle under his belt and he ran ahead of Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. A couple of things that we see in this passage that show us what boiler room prayers are about. Those engine-inducing, the fire-keeping prayers are about. And the first thing is that boiler room prayers are Bible-based prayers. When Elijah declared in chapter 17 verse 1 that there would be no rain it was based on as i said deuteronomy chapter 11 where god said israel when you give yourself to worship idols i will shut up the heavens so that it won't rain and when you repent i'll restore it elijah prayed both sides of that prayer in both cases elijah's prayer were simply praying god's promises back to him god you said it's not going to rain because our people have things i pray lord that you would keep your word in the midst of that keep your promise and then on the back end lord you said that when your people repented they came back to you you would bring water they have repented they have come back now bring the rain i've heard it said that the bible is a book of promises Some scholars have traced somewhere in the thousands, 2,500 to 3,000 promises. Our job is to mine through the promises of God in Scripture. Like we're mining for gold, or in this day and time, Bitcoin. Unearthing promises and praying them back to God. Prayer is not random wish list we present to God. Prayer is the process of discovering what God wants to do and then asking Him to do it. Tony Evans has been quoted as saying, Prayer is how we make contact with what God has already decreed. Prayer does not make God do what He hasn't planned to do. Prayer releases God to do what He has decreed to do. Where there is no prayer, there is no contact. And where there is no contact, you will not get what God has declared for you to have. Someone has said that prayer is like the electricity running through the walls of the house. At any given point in time, there's enough electricity in the walls of your house to power your refrigerator, to run your heater, to put your TV on, to run the computers that are in your house, the washing machine, the blender. But until you plug it into the socket, until you make contact with the socket and turn the machine on, none of that power benefits you. You could be standing right next to the plug with no access to power because you've not plugged in. It doesn't work. Some of us may experience this in the next few days. I hope not. Probably maybe not this storm, but the storm that they're predicting then, we may have some ice with it. Sometimes when ice comes... Power lines happen, go down. How many of you, when the lights are off in your house, still try to turn on the lights when you walk in a room? Anybody here besides me feel like you're crazy when you do that? Walk in a room, you flip the switch, like, what? Oh, yeah, the electricity's out, right? A lot of us in our lives are wondering why we are where we are spiritually. 
when we've lost our connection with the Lord and we're trying to turn the lights on when the electricity's out. And it's not mysterious what we ought to be praying. We find what God has commanded us to do, what He wants for us, what He's decreed for us, and we pray for that to happen. One of the practices that has helped my life in this way came from a book by a guy named Donald Whitney, who's a professor at Southern Seminary. It's a short, pretty short book. It's called Praying the Bible. And it simply is asking God what is already declared in there. Trying to pray without knowledge of the Bible is like trying to fire a gun without any bullets in it. A lot of clicking, but no real bang. Because you don't know what it is that God is asking us to do. Your life's not being formed by the words and the worldview of our Father. Boiler room praying is based on what the Bible shows us. Secondly, boiler room prayer is spirit-led. This is the counterbalance to what is the one before. It is true that God has declared in His Word that He would withhold rain. It was true that God had declared in his word that he would bring rain back. But God doesn't give Elijah the specifics until Elijah is in connection with him and the Spirit reveals it to it. So if there are 3,000 promises in the Bible, that doesn't mean that at any moment God is fulfilling or going to fulfill all 3,000 in that moment for us. We have to be available, ready, listening to the Lord to be able to know when the time is. Two times in the story, we see Elijah discern in his spirit something God wants to do. In 1 Kings 17, that first verse where he says, God says that now is the time that he's going to withhold rain. He says, God said he would do it, now is the time. The second time is in verse 41. Look there, it says, Elijah said to Ahab, go up, eat, and drink, for there is the sound of a rainstorm. Now, let me just stop there for a second, and let's go with the reality that in this moment, for the people that are around, there is no sound of a rainstorm happening at the moment. Right? If you look at the rest of the story, how many times does the servant have to go back and forth before he sees a cloud the size of a hand? How many times? Seven. So at this moment, King Ahab is not hearing the sound of a rainstorm. The servant is not hearing the sound of a rainstorm. So either Elijah is speculating or God has put him in contact with something through his spirit that is showing him something that is to come that has not yet happened. Because in general in life, What do we say about people that hear things that nobody else hears? Right? They're not, they're not all there. Something's going on. Something's wrong. If your, if your spouse came up to you and says, man, do you hear those rain rain clouds? Do you hear that storm coming? And you looked out and it is beautiful and sunny without a cloud in the sky. You're going to go, honey, do we need to go to the doctor? Like, is everything okay? But what's happened here is that he is in touch with what the Lord is doing. Because of his proximity to God, because of who he was in his standing with God, he could hear something nobody else could hear. Elijah, through the knowledge of the Spirit, hears things and discerns things that no one else can. 
And he said, that's great, Lyle. Great pastor, but that's Elijah. Surely he doesn't mean us. Except in the New Testament, there are a couple of verses that say something like, I don't know, in James, Elijah was a man just like us. Specifically, Elijah was a man just like us. And that he prayed and God responded. In Acts chapter 2, Paul says that our sons and daughters, all of them, those that are believers, will prophesy. That if they are in touch with the Lord, they will hear and see and know things because of their relationship with the Lord. And he says, Jesus says in John fifteen twenty five, No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I call you friends. Because I'm going to show you what I'm doing and invite you to participate in it. Boiler room prayers are word-based. They're biblically based. But they're led by the Spirit. And it comes from our connection with the Lord. Our proximity to the Lord determines what we can and cannot hear. Third, boiler room prayers are laborious, patient, and persistent. There's an interesting detail about how Elijah prays. Now I want to tell you that this is unlike anything we kind of see in the rest of Scripture about someone praying. And when you're in Scripture and you see something unique in Scripture, there must be a reason for it to be unique. You have to ask the question, why? And so it says in there, if you look back in the story, it says that he gets down and he puts his head where? Between his knees to pray. Now, I have, not, you, I have never asked you. Let's all pray. Everyone sit and put your head between your knees. So what's going on here? Well, the Old Testament in, in the original language, it actually says how we would translate that in literal terms is he got into the fetal position. Like curled up in the fetal position. And scholars say, there are scholars that think that what is happening here is that God is putting him in that position to demonstrate that the birth pangs of God's renewal are coming and that he is birthing in that moment into existence through the prayers of this righteous man, through his power, what he is going to do to deliver his people in the midst of this drought. And it is to show the effort and the labor that goes into God working in and through us. So I specifically picked the word laborious because it is related in some way to labor. Secondly, it's patient and persistent. He prays. He tells the servant, run. Find out if the clouds are coming. The servant runs. He comes back. No clouds. All right, I'm going to pray some more. Gets down in that position, head between his knees, in the laboring, the fetal laboring position. And as he's there, he sends the servant out after the second time. And the second time the servant comes and comes back and goes, no rain, no rain. Okay, give me a few minutes. Gets back in there, spends time, maybe hours, maybe days. Then give us a picture of how long. Says, go again. And the servant goes again and comes back and goes, nothing. At this point, the servant's probably thinking, this is a lost cause. And it says in Scripture that he does this how many times? Seven. Now, you know this, right? 
You don't, you don't have to be somebody that's trying to figure out what every number in the Bible means to know that seven in the Bible is a number of completion. Seven days that creation happened, that seven is the days of the week because of that. Throughout Scripture, this number recurs with the idea of completion. And so the point here is that Elijah prayed until it was done. And on the seventh time, he sends the man, the servant, and he comes back and he says, there is a cloud. The New Testament has several names for this kind of prayer. James calls it effectual, fervent. Jesus calls it persistent, even impudent. Paul calls it unceasing. The Puritans called it prevailing. Whatever you call it, the Bible says and speaks often of the kind of prayer that brings new life to a nation. Spiritual rain from heaven is slow and laborious. It is persistent and patient. Some of you have heard the name D.L. Moody. Story is told of D.L. Moody that he carried in his pocket a list of a hundred people he knew needed Jesus. Isn't that amazing? I mean, I mean, Sometimes it's hard to come up, if we're honest, we, we have a hard time of asking people to come with three or four. He had a hundred in his pocket and he carried it around and at his funeral, 96 had become believers. 96. You'd say 96% success rate's pretty cool, isn't it? But here's the thing. The other four were at the funeral. And they gave their life to Christ there. He prayed for years. Secret, unglamorous work. He didn't tell that story to many people. It was told after his death. But for many of us, we give up way too soon. Even this week, when I was thinking about this, I ask myself the question, what promises of God, what blessings have I lost because I gave up on my prayers too soon? This story is an invitation for us. It doesn't mean you have to get in the fetal position to pray, but if you need to, then do it. To begin again or continue in the secret, hard, unglamorous, slow persistent work of prayer. Man, I want my life to be like the first part of this story when Elijah steps up to the altar and says, God, show off now. And God does. And there are moments in my life where God does. But more often, it is slow, persistent, continuing work. I'm just going to tell you, in the last year, two years, I have seen God answer some prayers that I've been praying for 10 years, 15 years, 30 years. And yet there are prayers that I've been praying for 35 years, for 40 years, for six months that he hasn't answered like I'm asking yet. But God calls us. To persevere. Here's the last one and we're done. Boiler room prayers are bold prayers. It's not a small thing he's asking here, right? 
to stop rain and to bring rain. I, I don't know about you, that's, that's not in my repertoire. I, can you imagine if I was able or you were able just to say, Lord, it doesn't need to rain today, don't do that. It's hard for us to imagine that kind of belief, that kind of power, and yet that's what he does. And what's interesting is, when you see God work in that way, it does things to you that you can't explain. It says in this passage that Elijah told Ahab, hey, get ready, it's coming. And why did he tell him to leave? So that he wouldn't get stopped by the rain. It's going to get muddy. It's going to rain so much, you're not going to be able to go through it and get in your chariot and go. And then he gives this little detail that I love because it, it it's almost like a superhero moment that he gets in the chariot. Now, let me ask you this, just a quick question. King of Israel, good horses or bad horses lead in his chariot? Good, right? Probably like the best, what kings do, right? It's what, what government officials do, right? Who wins the race? Elijah or the horses? The picture here is Elijah runs ahead as in passes them running. In a robe that he's tucked into his belt. He's not in... Lululemons, right? He's not in Fabletics. He's not got his New Balance or his own clouds on. He's in feet in a robe tucked into his belt and just takes off running. Reminds me in some ways of the way God works through people that are in touch with his spirit. How Caleb, remember when Caleb going into the promised land, Caleb was 85 years old and he said, I'm stronger today than I was in my 20s because the Lord is with me. And all God's people said, may it be so, right? The boldness of his prayer empowered him. Because if you're Elijah and you see all of a sudden the rain start to come, you were like, "Woo! let's go. I've been praying. There's been three years we've been talking about this. The people have returned. God is bringing the rain. It is celebration time. And he goes. His Bible-based, spirit-led, laborious, persistent, Bold, persevering prayers just carried the day. And here's the thing. I joked about it. Not in my repertoire to stop the rain. But the same God that stopped it and brought it for Elijah is the same God that we serve. Tony Evans tells a story. I quoted him earlier. They was doing an evangelistic crusade in Bryce Stadium in Columbia, South Carolina. It was a Sunday night. It was the first night of the crusade. Somewhere between fifteen and 20,000 people had gathered in the stadium. And before the service, all the ministers and planning committees went downstairs to pray. And a gentleman came in and said, we've just been warned that there's a major storm coming at 7 o'clock. It's 6 and the meeting is supposed to begin at 7, so we went into prayer. And we prayed that God would hold off the rain and slow the, allow the service to go on and All the ministers prayed, but every minister, including me, prayed a safe prayer, Tony Evans says. He said, this was my safe prayer. Lord, if it is your will, don't let it rain. He says, it's safe because if we say, if it's your will, Lord, and then it rains, we can say, well, see, my prayer didn't get wrong. It's just that God decided it wasn't in his will. 
But he said at the end of the one-night prayer, there was this little lady, a five-foot-one lady named Linda. I don't know if you've ever seen Tony Evans. He's a large man. He said he had other large men around. And this woman was in the room, and she was five-foot-one, and she said, can I pray? And he said, this is a summary of what she prayed. She said, Lord, we are here doing what you ask us to do. You ask us to win people to Christ. You ask us to proclaim your word. We have spent money, time, and energy putting this crusade together, doing what you told us to do. So you would embarrass yourself if you let it rain. Because you control the weather. So therefore, God, I command you to stop the rain. Tony said, we all took a step back from that woman. Expecting at any moment that little woman was not going to be in the room any longer. And so we walked up to the stadium. It was 7 o'clock. MC came out and said, ladies and gentlemen, we know it's supposed to rain. It's supposed to get bad. We're just going to go as long as we can. He says, we began the service, the black and thundering clouds behind us. And you could hear people beginning to leave. He said, I'm looking down. From the platform, and Linda is the is in the crowd, sitting next to a gentleman who opens up his umbrella and puts it over her. Linda took her hand and pushed the umbrella away, and says, "We don't need it." He said, and then it happened. As we sat there at Bryce Stadium with our own eyes, the clouds split. Half of them went one way, half of them went the other. And then the rain came back together on the other end of the stadium. He says, as ministers, we were being spiritually polite. But God heard Linda's effectual, fervent prayer. She got down, put her head between her knees, and pushed and pushed like Elijah. Like Jacob, she said to the Lord, I'm not going to do something. I mean, I'm not going to leave here until you do something. Now, my point is not that we should never say, God, if it's your will, we should be praying all the time for God's will. My point is that we often give ourselves an out, which means we really don't believe God's going to work. God wants bold prayers from us. And I, more than ever, more than any time in my 16 plus years here, more than any time that I have been a pastor in a church, I feel the Lord desires to work here. And yet I can feel myself, even as your pastor, kind of hedging my bets, though. But Lord, whatever that means, whatever that looks like, maybe it won't look like everything else. And man, last week after last week, I just felt the Lord saying, quit being polite with your prayers. That's why when I read the story of Linda, a five foot one lady that told the Lord, don't let it rain. We know God wants to save people. We know God wants to change our lives. We know God wants to use us for his glory and the spread of his kingdom. So let's pray boldly that God does that. And let's pray fervently, persistently, again and again. We've got our own boiler room ministry. They don't meet during Right now, they meet before, but every Sunday morning, we've got a group of people. We've got a text chain of people that are praying, and they are praying for the church and for God to move. Let's pray big prayers as a congregation for God to do what we can only even begin to ask and can't even imagine. Praying simply for Him to do what He already told us He wants to do. And we're going to talk in the next few weeks about 
getting ourselves out of the way for that to happen because there's lots of things that have to get out of the way for the effectual prayers of people to be heard and for God to move. But let's not limit what God can. Heavenly Father, we thank you for stories like Elijah that show us what bold prayer looks like. And I pray, Lord, that we would be a people that boldly come before you. You have promised us in the book of Hebrews that because of the blood of Jesus, because of what he did for us on the cross, that we can come and approach the throne of grace with confidence, with boldness. So, Lord, I pray that you would give us the ability to pray bold prayers for reconciliation that seems like it's impossible, for salvations that seem impossible, for movement from you that seems impossible to us. But, Lord, it is what you desire in our lives and in the lives of this church, Lord, and we pray that you would glorify your name, that you would spread your kingdom, and that you would let us be a part of seeing you do it. And I pray, Lord, even as we journey together through this renewal, that you'll give us wisdom to just simply follow you and be bold in our discipleship, in our actions, and in our prayers. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.